Thank you, Dan. Thank you. You can turn now to your, uh, your Bibles to this primary text today. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 15 where we left off last week. 1 John chapter 2. The text reads, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. This is probably going to get a little uncomfortable today. Do not love the world. You know, I I don't know if you were alive in the 80s. Many of you were. Uh, If so, you probably remember the song, We Are the World. Remember that mid-80s, about 1985? Uh, That was written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. It was an attempt to uh, provide awareness and and to alleviate hunger uh, at the time in Africa. So they got all this group together. I think they called it a super group of varying artists. And they sang the song, you know, We Are the World, We Are the Children. You remember that, right? I've been trying for months, actually, to get Gerald to bring this on as a special. He still refuses I'm not sure why. But verse 2 of that song goes like this. We can't go on pretending day by day that someone somewhere will soon make a change. We all are a part of God's great big family, and the truth, you know, love is all we need. Remember that? The song was an attempt, at least the best attempt that the world can make, to solve a legitimate problem by lumping the world all into one great big family. They want everyone to work together for a goal. Um, you know, it wasn't, was a reasonable goal. We can't fault that. I mean, it's a whole lot better than lobbing Scud missiles at one another, isn't it? Feed the people. And yet, it illustrates a continuous and small, subtle attempt of society and the world to get us all to conform. All to conform. We can expect that the world will continue to do this as time goes on now. They're going to want everyone to conform to the world. The world has plans and it's setting its agenda. But the reality is that Christians are not like the world at all. In fact, we're completely distinct from the world We don't think like the world. We don't enjoy many of the things that the world enjoys. We don't worship the same things or for the same reasons. Movies take on a completely different role. Uh, In fact, by God's grace, as I've grown in in faith over the years, as I've grown in Christ, from time to time, you know, I'll, I'll go over to Netflix and see what's playing over there, and I'll look and I'll see a movie that I had watched Decades ago, possibly in the 80s or 90s, I'm like, oh, I remember that. That was such a good movie, previous to knowing Christ. And then I'll watch and flick it in, and 
turn it on, and after a few minutes, I'll look, ooh, ooh, that, that wasn't good. A few more minutes goes on, oh dear, dear, that was a little bit vulgar. But by the time you're 10 minutes into the film, it's like, oh gosh, that, this, this isn't good. And then finally I'll hear from the kitchen a voice screaming, shut that off. Because of our spiritual rebirth, Christians develop a taste, a distaste, excuse me, for worldliness. We develop that distaste. That's because something very special has happened to us as we've trusted in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 informs us that previously we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. That means we didn't have a spiritual relationship with God. We weren't his children. We were dead. Our favorite time actually was finding really creative ways to get by with sinning. That's what consumes a lot of the time of the unbeliever. How can I do this and get by with it? Well, that passage continues. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of of the world, according to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly walked in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love which he loves us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And it says, for by grace we have been saved. We were spiritually dead. We walked according to the course of the world, according to its lusts, its desires. Because of this deadness, we weren't children of God at all. What does it say? That text says that we were children of wrath. We were under God's wrath. We weren't saved. We were under judgment. But praise be to God that Ephesians chapter 1 indicates that the Christian no longer is in that category. That says that we've been convicted of our sins by the Holy Spirit, and then having heard the gospel of our salvation... And then also having believed, we were then sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption, to a God's own possession. That's what we are now. This describes a spiritual regeneration of the heart, the change of the heart. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we were born again into God's family, right? And we inherited eternal life, and thereby we escaped God's wrath. We escaped that by the blood of Christ. So we're, we're now, no longer just simply born into the world physically. Christians have been reborn into God's family. Our hearts have been spiritually changed. We have been born again. Now before we look at this text a little closer, I really want to assure everyone, we learned last week that, that we're all in a different progression on this. You don't become a Christian and know everything and, and have a perfectly conformed life day one. 
Some of us are in the little children stage. Remember last week that passage told us? Some of us are becoming spiritual adults, and some who are more mature are now spiritual fathers. And it takes years to progress through this. So don't be surprised as I describe some of these criteria of, wilder, of worldliness that they to some degree still affect your life. They probably do. But if you're God's child, you've been born again, you must strive, that passage told us, to grow, to develop by cherishing God's word, growing through the word. So please look with me at verse 15. It says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. As a Christian, you, can't, you simply can't love the world. We're aliens traveling through. At least you can't love it with any, any sense or degree of veneration. You don't worship the world, the things in the world. Now, now Christians we know are very grateful for the things in the world. We're very thankful to God for our food, for the sunshine, for the rain, for all that he provides us. We're very grateful for the world that God has created. We appreciate things, but we don't love the material world. Why? Because if we allow that to happen, it will crowd out God. We won't love God the way we're supposed to love him. So we, the world competes with God for our love. We do care for the world, at least the way that the Scripture appropriately prescribes as stewards that we care for the world. We don't love it. And we certainly don't express personal admiration towards it. We don't worship it. God said in Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God, You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing else is to receive the adoration and worship. Instead, uh, like these we've observed earlier in Scripture, such as Abraham, we don't love the world because we know we're just passing through. This is just a layover. You're stopping in a terminal to get somewhere else. The world is not God. The world is created by God. That's where the problem comes in. God's already notified us that he's eventually going to destroy this entire world. That was our scripture reading from last week, 2 Peter chapter 3, remember? He's going to melt it down. He's going to reform it. He's in a demonstration of his glory and his majesty and his love for those people who love him. He's going to recreate the world for us. Everything that we see now is going to be melted down. It is not going to exist in eternity. So we don't love it. It's going to be permanently gone. So don't get attached to it. Don't love the world. That's what John is trying to tell us here. And he provides two warnings in verse 15. The first one you'll see is do not love the world. The second is Do not love the things in the world. How about that first prohibition? What is the world? What's that mean? A world here is a Greek word, cosmos. I don't think we would have a hard time guessing what that 
word means. Some commentators understand it to represent the material world and everything in it. Stars, land, sea, animals. Others understand that John is primarily indicating the world system. Social structures, power structures, influence, sources of entertainment, sex, greed. Everything that we would lust after. It's probably both. That's why he uses this all-encompassing term, the cosmos. Don't love it. Abraham wasn't concerned about ascending to power. He, he wasn't constantly searching out the next form of entertainment. He wasn't enjoying all of the lustful pleasures of society. He, he also wasn't worried about acquiring a lot of stuff. You know, Abraham traveled through life in what? A tent. How much can you carry in a tent? He wasn't enticed by the conveniences or the sanctuary that were offered through a bustling city. His nephew Lot's wife, however, wasn't exactly the same, was she? We know what happened to her. She, she rather liked Sodom. You know, she, she grieved at leaving Sodom. She probably missed the thought of having tea with her neighbors, talking about the things going on in the town. Uh, she likely preferred the ease of purchasing things in the market rather than having to gather them in the wild. Perhaps she might have even enjoyed the sensual atmosphere. Maybe it was a combination of everything. Whatever it was, she loved the world enough to disobey God and turn back. Her heart was unrighteous, and her greatest affection, her love, was for the world. You know what happened to her. There's a fascinating verse that most of us miss when we read quickly. It's in Luke chapter 17, verse 32. Very interesting. There's, there Jesus is discussing with the disciples his, his imminent return. He's coming back, right? It's going to be sudden, as in the days of Noah. And in this discourse, Jesus says this. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Wow. He cites Lot's wife. She loved the world. We need to adopt, not adopt an attitude that we're going to be grieved by what we're going to leave behind here. It's very transient. Lot, in comparison, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 tells us he was righteous. Lot was righteous. And not because he was sinless. Lot wasn't sinless. It was because his heart was troubled by what he experienced and saw in the world. And you know what? He was willing to turn his back on the world and walk away from it when God commanded him to do so. He turned from the world and he didn't look back. And though our flesh may still be drawn to the physical things in the world, the sinful things, we may still feel that lust towards things. A Christian like Lot should be very troubled by vulgar billboards. They should be troubled by what they see on television, about the lyrics that they hear on the radio, about what they see in the movies and elsewhere. 
In fact, Peter tells us that Lot's soul was actually tormented by what he saw. Are you tormented by what you see in the world? Does it bother you what you see going on in the world? I hope it does. I truly hope it does. Christians love righteousness as Lot loved righteousness. We love of the Father abides in us through His indwelling Holy Spirit. We belong to Him. We are not of the world. Loving the world in regards to its social devices, it's not the only inappropriate expression of love towards the world. Another is simply to love love God's creation in such a way to elevate it to the level of worship. Worshiping the world goes, goes way beyond just responsible stewardship, taking care of things, using them wisely, treating animals humanely when you use them for work. We do that. Christians do that. We preserve the best we can what we use because God's given it to us. But even before the fall into sin, God placed man into creation to rule. He was given the task to subdue what God had created. In, in Genesis first, uh, chapter 1, verse 28, God tells mankind, tells Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and rule over the birds of the air and rule over every living thing that moves on the earth. We're here to rule over creation, to subdue it. Now, in contrast to this, contrast to what God's Word says, Satan has formed a counterfeit religion. It's called naturalism. Leave creation alone. Don't touch that. Make preserves. Don't harvest. In fact, those who do love the world, they actually tell us that man's not a good thing for the world at all. Actually, it'd be a lot better if man wasn't even here when you listen to them. He's not here to rule. He's the problem. They love the creation more than they do man. It teaches that preservation of fish and birds and beasts, it's the highest expression of spirituality, they will say. And instead of serving and worshiping God and His Son, Jesus Christ, they worship and serve animals the likes of which that both Jude and Peter said are unreasoning beasts. That's what they are, unreasoning animals. And those who who promote this type of ideology of loving creation, whether it's worshiping a river, an animal, a bird, or the stars, they're often uh, society's most highly educated, right? They're the smart ones. There are scientists and psychologists and doctors and they've got degrees hanging on the walls. They're the brightest minds of our day, right? That's what we're told. We just don't know. Listen to the brightest minds of our day. Well, listen to Romans 1, verse 22. It begins, Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. 
Therefore God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They served creatures. Rather than ruling, they served creatures. Rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. That passage continues, For this reason, God gave them over to their degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, because they serve creatures. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts, receiving the penalty due. So we can observe that the anticipated degradation of society begins with fools who like the scientific explanation, the type of scientific explanation. Christians love scientific explanation. They like the type, however, that just excludes God. Leave him out of the picture. And the result of that type of scientific exploration, investigation, results in the elevation of God's creation especially unreasoning animals, as it de-elevates God. There will come a time where man is willing to serve stupid four-footed animals rather than God. And God says, you know, you don't want to rule, so I'm just going to turn them, these people over to their lust, their impurity to the point where it progresses even to the point of unnatural sex. And we can know by this time, Romans says, that God has judged that society. What can be anticipated next for such a society? That's explained in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. Uh, I'm going to let you read that for yourselves. The bottom line is that all of this indicates God's judgment. Because society loves a created world. results in worshiping land and seas and birds and baboons to the point where ultimately the life of millions of unborn children means nothing and the life of one unreasoning stupid lion in Africa means everything. How sick is that? That's false religion. It is false religion. And people ask, well, well is it really a religion? Yes, it's a religion. And how do we know that? It's because these people in doing so, they claim their righteousness by it. They claim that they're good because they do this. I'm a righteous person. You can't say that you're good. I'm good. I'm the one who's trying to help the lion. It's what they believe. They find their righteousness through what they believe. They think they're really, really good people because they, they, they'll save a sick, li- sickly little dog or cat. That makes them a good person. You can ask them. And they won't volunteer their time, invest their money to proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. They won't use it to worship God. They'll use their time and money to build an animal clinic. They'll volunteer their time to take care of those things with the exclusion 
of worshiping God and truth. That is false religion. It needs to be said very boldly and publicly in our culture today, and it doesn't because it's such a hot button item. We see it here in Romans chapter 1. We see it in 1 John chapter 2. Um, God cares no more for that little poodle that you have or that little kitten. I've had them too. I think they're great. But God cares no more for them than he does for that little mouse or lizard that you so joyfully exterminate. Yet we will venerate one animal above another. Elevating one animal over another, that's just formulating your own false doctrine. You don't get that from Scripture. Uh, It's not according to God. It's certainly not according to God's Son. The little bit that Jesus did say about animals, besides like picking your ox up out of a ditch, donkey up out of a ditch, is what did he tell Peter? Take it, kill it, and eat it. All kinds of four-footed creatures. Nothing specific. Does that seem like Jesus is elevating the role of animals to where we're supposed to serve them? No. We've talked about this before in small groups. Does God love the sparrow? Enough where he provides food for it, so the biological cycle of life continues, yes. It falls to the ground, Matthew 10 will tell us, and God knows about it. It's not forgotten. And, uh, you know, God knows everything that's going on. He's omniscient. Well, that's what that passage is saying. Both that and in Luke, Luke 12, I believe, is the other location. God knows about it. In that same passage, it talks about, He knows every hair of your head. And that whole passage is not talking about how much God loves an animal or a sparrow. The whole passage is indicating how much God cares for the person. That's the point of that passage. This veneration of love of animals to the level of humans in our society is an indication we're facing God's judgment. That's what loving the created world will do. So we're warned not to love the world's social systems. We're not to love the natural world itself, to worship the stars or pray to the stars. And then John's letter tells us to not love, the NIV says, anything in the world. Or my version translates this, do not love the things of the world. Simply means don't love stuff. Don't love stuff. Again, everything... uh, Even those things fashioned by man, tools, cars, vacation resorts, jewelry, it's all going to be melted down. Enjoy it. Thank God for it. Don't worship it. Don't get attached to it. They're temporal. Temporal. You may use them while you are here and be a good steward of them, but you can't take them with you. I don't believe I've used this illustration before, at least in Sunday morning. If I did, I apologize. But it makes a great, great point. In 1923, an archaeologist discovered what became known as King Tut's tomb. Remember that? And King Tut had a coffin when they finally found it. But it wasn't just one coffin. 
It was three coffins, three gold coffins. And it was one coffin inside another coffin inside another coffin. All three gold coffins. The whole thing weighed 3,000 pounds. It's interesting. I mean, it's magnificent. And, and in addition, his tomb was supplied with thousands of priceless artifacts. He had six gold chariots. There were um, two thrones. He had gold musical instruments. There's probably even a gold harmonica in there, Gerald, somewhere. He had uh, gold weapons and, and all kinds of fine linens, ivory and ebony, gold and silver. All the finest things that the world could provide, he had in that tomb. And over 3,000 years later, we still have all of those items with us here. And King Tut is still dead. You can't take them with you. We all like things. You know, I like things. We need, we need things, you know, in order to survive in the world. So at one point, what point then do you, do you come to love them? What point do you come to love things? Well, one way that you can consider whether you love stuff is by, the, by whether or not keeping it and acquiring it prompts you to directly disobey God. The Bible tells us of a man who loved things. His name was Achan. And we read in the book of Joshua, as the Israelites were now passing across the Jordan and going in to conquer Jericho before going into the promised land, they had to take that city. And, but the spoils of Jericho, the gold and the silver in there, that was off limits. God said, all of that is going into the temple treasury. This first city here, that's exclusively reserved for the temple treasury. You don't get to have any of that stuff. But you know, Achan loved that shiny stuff so much. He really wanted some of that. And he coveted that gold and silver to the point where he grabbed some and no one was looking, and he stuffed it inside his private tent. So I'm going to keep some of that, keep it with me. Without growing, going into great detail, uh, his love of those things in the world caused him, and it cost him. It caused him to directly disobey God, and it cost him his family and everything that he had, even to the point of their lives. The stuff cost him his family. Is that worth it? Just to have stuff. So, so the question is, when is that car too expensive? When it's payment and insurance get to the point where you're not able to help other people generously as God tells you to. Then get rid of it. When is uh, that, that boat or motorcycle or car or jet ski or whatever you enjoy, golf cart, when is it, when is it too much to have? That's good stuff. Man, I love some of that stuff in that way, veneration way. Set myself up for that one, didn't I? <laughs> when does that all become too much stuff? Well, when it comes between you and assembling with the saints would be indication. If you've got to disobey God and not regularly be with the people of God to worship because you have to be out every single Sunday golfing, you've got a problem. You're disobeying God. Stuff has come between you and God. Use that type of guideline. Achan disobeyed God just to keep some stuff. Try not to do that. 
Oh, it's not that hard. Don't love the things of the world or they'll become between you and God. Well, kind of beginning to wrap up here a little, look at verse 16 with me. The picture doesn't get a whole lot brighter. This describes what these things that you love so much do to you. Look with me, if you will. Verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Provides an explanation uh, for the appeal of everything worldly. And first, John here mentions that which causes you to satisfy the lust of the flesh. The flesh here indicates bodily appetites, especially implied are things that are sensual, sensual bodily appetites. A term uh, used for lust would include things like sex outside of biblical marriage, any type of provocative behavior that you're engaging in, Sensuality is often demonstrated by the females by dressing provocatively, being the center of attention, uh, becoming an exhibitionist in the way they dress. That can be demonstrated in that way. On the male side, just the opposite, pursuing that same stuff. Pursuing those, those places where you find that stuff, whether it's in a club, on the internet, through a magazine. That's lust. Television's increasingly displaying sensual, vulgar programming. Uh, Here it says that's not from the Father. That stuff ought to torment you. Then there's the lust of the eyes. Uh, This is that consuming desire to acquire more and more stuff. America's eat up with this. They just got to have stuff. We've got to have stuff. The person here experiences no contentment. They never have enough. The satisfaction is pursued by just getting more and more. They've got to have it. A bigger home, a faster car, a younger spouse, always pursuing stuff. Paul rightly declares to us, though, however, with food and with covering, we shall be content. That's enough when you're passing through a place that's temporary. It's enough to be content. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Most of us have far more than that. I know there's people struggling. But most of us have enough. But we become unsatisfied if we lust with our eyes the things of the world. It's called covetousness. That's why Jesus said, it'd be better if you're lusting at something to to gouge your eye out if that's causing you to do it. Meaning, take yourself out of that environment. Make that environment disappear. Naturally, all this uh, lusting and acquisition that he's talking about, it culminates in an outward behavior. It becomes, what he says, is our boastful pride of life. When you've filled every lust, when you've bought everything that your pocketbook can purchase, when your credit cards are maxed and you can't get any more stuff, when you've done everything you can to pursue the world, you can pursue more. Uh, can pursue no more. What can you still do? You can talk about it. You can boast about all your stuff. William MacDonald, a theologian, describes this boastful pride of life as the unholy ambition for self-display and self-glory. That's what stuff does to you. It's a type of empty boasting that, again, excludes God. It implies, the word implies a bold haughtiness. 
In fact, there's only one other place in Scripture where this term uh, appears, and that's in James chapter 4. And in that text, it's actually translated arrogance. It's, it's describing the individual who believes that he's a self-made man, done it all on his own. That text goes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. James says, You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, he says, If the Lord wills, we will live and we will also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. People bent on acquiring the things of the world, whether pursuing physical beauty, money, prestige, all that thing, all those things, all that stuff, what do they eventually want to do? They want to display it, right? They want to display it. And that can become manifest in a very proud and ostentatious life that just screams, look at me. Look at me. That's the boastful pride of life. Look at me and what I've done instead of what God has done for me. It's a serious mistake to think that you can simply pursue all the world has to offer without consequences. Do you know why? Look at the first half of verse 17. It's because the world is passing away and also it's lust. It's on borrowed time. The world is passing away. Its time is running out. Everybody t- thinks of this for obvious reasons. It's like, when? When is the world passing away? Is it going to last another hundred years, another thousand years, three more weeks? When? I always reply to that. It could be today. Your, your heart might stop Today. That truck might hit you today. The world's time, or your time in it, is running out. And the world is running out as well. It is passing away. It can't deliver on its promises. It can't satisfy. If you don't believe me, look at anyone in the the droves of people in Hollywood, in professional sports, all the people with money who've acquired everything. They become so dissatisfied that they're checking out left and right. Say, I'm done with this. I don't know if he's checked out yet, but (laughs) it's all passing away. The world, it's a dead-end street. It cannot fulfill. It can't satisfy. But you know what? You don't have to perish at the end of that street. You do not have to live to acquire the world. You can invest it in demonstrating your love towards God and love towards people. You can obey him. And the end of our passage today, verse 17, assures us, the one who does the will of God lives forever. That song that that Dan sang, I didn't know he was going to sing that one. He's talking about seeing people in heaven that have passed before us. Talking probably to even Father Abraham and all those people lived in those tents. That's what we're looking forward to. A new country, a new city, a new residence of righteousness. That's where we want to be. We don't want to perish here in our sin just to get stuff. 
So we love God. Actually, we love what God did for us. If you're visiting today, you haven't had this clearly articulated to you. Let me say it again. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who shall ever believe in him will never perish but has everlasting eternal life. That is what God offers to you. That your sin, everything that you've done, every lustful thought, everything you've bought that you shouldn't have, that you regret, everything you've bought that you don't regret, any sin you've committed, God was willing to pour that out on his son. His son bore the shame, the weight of the world for every wrong thing that we've done. And all God says, my sinless, perfect son, what I'd like you to do is trust in him. Don't trust in yourself. Believe in God. Believe in His Son. Believe that He died and cleansed you from your sins. If you've never received God's gift of salvation, He offers it to you today. Today. We encourage you, if you've done wrong, to recognize it. We know you've done wrong. We've all done wrong. Trust in Christ. Don't love the world, folks. It looks grandiose. It really looks good. It's a thin veneer. It's like those statements that were given out by Bernie Madoff, quarterly financial statements, sent with all those zeros on the end of it, and people thinking they're doing so good, and there was nothing there to back it up. It was bankrupt. This world is bankrupt. Turn your life over Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, Father, Father in heaven, oh, you are so loving and grand and merciful, Lord, so full of grace to offer us a free gift that you paid the ultimate price for. Lord, by giving your son to die for the sins of the world and to offer that to everyone, Lord, on the basis of faith, to just trust in what Jesus has done, that he did what we can't do. He lived a perfect life we haven't, and he died a death that we would never want to have to die. Lord, thank you for all of this. Thank you for guiding us today through your word. Thank you for the stuff that we can use for quality of life, Lord. Thank you for this wonderful country we live in, Lord, that gives us air conditioning, and full stomachs, Lord, and and transportation. We are so blessed and we are so grateful for all of it, Lord. We praise you for it. Let us not get in our head, though, that this whole life is all about that stuff. Lord, bless us as we depart today. Guide us in, in all of your truth so that we can honor the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.